Tonight we are reading Joshua chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan. And he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who will bear the Ark of the Covenant of When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of their feet of the and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waves coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the, this, the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those following down toward the sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. 
Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your generous provisions, that you have seen our needs and weaknesses, and you have provided greatly for us. Lord, we pray for our eyes and ears and minds that you would give us sharpness, that we will be able to hear what you have to say in this passage, the truth that it contains, that we would be able to know you more, to love you better, and to serve you as we ought. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the greatest struggles that people tend to have um, in kind of early years, in adolescence, going into 20s, and then again later on in life, is this question of, who am I? What is my purpose? What, you know, what really, how do I define that? It's a tough question because we don't have a rubric for how to define who am I. Is it by relationship? Am I, am I a dad? Is that my identity? Am I a pastor? Is that my identity? Is it by my citizenship? Is, it, am I, is American my identity? Is it what I do? Is it what my purpose is in life? I had a professor in my undergraduate who, in the middle of the semester, quit his job and left and moved to Japan in the middle of teaching a class that I was in. And he, his reasoning was, I have to find myself and understand who I am. Now, that actually is quite a hard question for some people. And the benefit that we have as Christians is that God tells us who we are. He has given us an identity and a purpose. He has done this throughout history to, for his people, and it is consistent for what he does to, for us today. Today, we just read about Israel passing through the Jordan, crossing over this dangerous river. And what we're actually going to do is take kind of a wider angle lens, because this is not the first time that God has saved people through waters, going through treacherous waters. And the pattern that we see is that God does this at times of salvation. And we're going to be looking for a moment at the worldwide flood, Noah passing through the waters, the Red Sea, the people of Israel passing through the waters, and then now focusing on crossing the Jordan, passing through these waters. And how God does not just save us from things. He now also, in this passage, shows that he saves us for things. He gives us purpose and identity. In the first, pas in the, in the first passage, uh, Genesis 6 through 9, God saves Noah and his family from the flood. And in this account, we're not going to read the account, but God has seen that evil has abounded on the earth, and he's going to send a worldwide flood. His judgment, these waters that will come down from the sky and rush up from the deep, these are God's judgment against the pervasive and wicked sins on the earth. The New Testament gives an attestation to this and says that these things are not just an old historical happening. It, just didn't, it didn't just happen and 
has no significance for us as believers in the New Testament. Hebrews 11:7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Here we see that Noah was saved through the waters, and, yet he, and he is saved by faith alone. This is God's pattern for salvation. He is showing that he is consistent in how he has saved us, in his character, who he is, and what he does. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 says, uh, this is kind of in the middle of the, of the sentence, but he says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we see that this story, this historical event of Noah and the ark, corresponds to baptism, that there is a passing through water, and it is representative of what we have in Christ. It starts out that people are wicked, and that water comes as a judgment from God. It is something that is going to wipe out, make the place clean. But God is gracious to Noah. He gives him a warning, and by God's grace, the judgment that pours down from the sky and rushes up from the deep and takes, out the, takes away the life of everything else on the face of the earth, those things batter the ark that Noah and his family is inside, and it does not touch him. He is preserved from the judgment of God's just wrath. Now, if you are in Christ, you have an even better salvation than Noah. Because Christ's work on the cross has absorbed God's wrath on your behalf to a greater extent. And not only that, not only that, but Christ, that he did not just save you from wrath alone. Christ's work does more than that. And we see are going to continue to see the images of his salvation, of Christ's salvation for you, and how God repeatedly is saving his people. And so here, first of all, he saves from God's just wrath. But furthermore, God saves not only from his just wrath, but he saves us from the dominion of sin and slavery to sin. We can see this clearly pictured in God saving Israel out of Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea, and they are saved by God's mighty hand at this, at this event, out of something that they're running from something that they cannot conquer, that they cannot overcome themselves. And this as well is referenced in the New Testament as a sign of baptism. Hebrews 11.29 talks about it and, and through faith and as an image of baptism. Hebrews 11.29 says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, 
but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The Israelites, by faith, they were able to pass through the waters when, by all accounts, they should not have been able to. And when others tried, they were drowned. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2 says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea. And this Paul is using to to warn them, to say that now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. But we see the correspondence, the pattern of God's salvation. Israel was enslaved to a wicked force that they could not overcome. They were under the power, under the thumb of Pharaoh. And it was God's unilateral salvation that brought them out of Egypt. His plagues that caused, that gave them the freedom to leave. And then his power to, it says, uh, he, he sent a wind to split the sea for them so that they may pass through the waters. If you are in Christ, we, you also have this image applied to you because before you were not just under God's wrath, you were not just deserving his punishment, you were also enslaved to sin. It's not that just that you had a few bad marks on your record, it's that you were the type of person who made more and more bad marks and had no recourse. You had no way to unenslave yourselves, to take yourself out of the dominion of sin and slavery, like the people of Israel did not have the ability to take themselves out of that. And God, in this momentous point in history, has them pass through the waters, signaling another another, uh, aspect of salvation. So the first aspect of salvation being justification, the removal of God's wrath. The second aspect of, of salvation here is seen as our sanctification being taken out of the dominion of sin and into life with God. And then, here, now the focus of our passage, the crossing of the Jordan River, we see something distinct. Because in the first two instances, God is saving people from something else. There is something that is going to cause them to die, something that is causing them enslavement, something that they ought to be running from, and God delivers them from that thing. But as it stands, the Israelites, there's nothing chasing them. There's nothing behind them. They, they may have just sat there on the side of the Jordan, on the, on, on the, western, on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan, for as long as they wanted. Nothing was coming at them. But what kind of life would that be? They don't have a home, most of them, right? The, the, the people of Gad and Reuben and half-tribe of Manasseh have, have a place, but not the rest of them. They don't have a purpose. They don't, they don't have a land of their own. What are they supposed to do? Go back and wander in the wilderness? No. 
God has a better salvation for them. They are not left in the wilderness. And it is important to note here that God is giving them these promises. I will be with you. I will, I will conquer your enemies. Do not, do not fear. Do not be worried. I will be there and I will do the conquering. But they didn't have free reign to just go anywhere and to conquer any, anyone. They couldn't just say, well, God's with us, so let's head north. Let's head north. East. Let's go wherever we want because we, now that we are free, now that we have the freedom that God has given us, we can just do anything. We can conquer any land. It's all ours for the taking. No. Because God gave them a specific promise and a specific purpose. They are to go and to take the land that he has promised to them. And there, they are able to receive that promise, the promise that he has given them, that they would have this land, that they would have rest, that he would be their God, and that they would be his people. They know what they're supposed to do, their purpose. They know who they are. We're the people of God. We're his chosen ones. This is God's pattern of salvation. He saved them from, and now he is showing that he saved them for something. The same is true for us. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The people of Israel had a specific purpose and plan. They were to take this, this land, Canaan. And God says that he has prepared specific works for us, for you. Having a purpose based on the things in, that God has planned for you based on the gifts he has given you, based on the place that he has put you, the opportunities that he has given you, all pointing towards his kingdom that he is building in us. Matthew 6.33 Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, all these things will be added to you. Right? He's talking about people worrying about what will I eat, what will I wear, where will I live. And he's drawing attention to the fact that we as Christians, yes, well, we have, we have jobs, we have responsibilities, we have all these things, but our first and primary purpose and identity is servants of God in his kingdom. We seek first the kingdom of God. That's who we are and what we do. And all these other things are secondary aspects. We are given the answer to who am I? 
What is my purpose? Now, you may be a doctor or a teacher or a father or a mother or a golfer or a reader of mystery novels, right? However, <laughs> you may choose to describe yourself, but those things are not primarily who you are, right? Those are things that maybe God is using in your life for his glory in some way. But those things are not who you are. All of those things can be taken away. What happens if there's a disaster and your children are taken away and you're no longer a father or mother? Terrible to think. But do you cease to be a person? Do you cease to have an identity? Do you cease to have a purpose? No. Because no matter what terrible thing comes in life, God has given you a first and primary calling in his kingdom and in Christ. If something terrible happens and you are no longer able to play the piano, you have a hand injury, you're no longer able to be a doctor, does that mean that you are less than, that you don't have a purpose, that your identity has been marred and taken away from you? No. Because you are a son or a daughter of God through the work of Christ. He is your God and you are his people. That is who you are relationally, right? If you want to define it by relationship, you are a son or daughter of God. If you want to define it by citizenship, if you, <laughs> if you get kicked out of America, I don't, this is a terrible example, you know, that, that doesn't end your personhood because you are primarily a citizen of God's kingdom. That is who you are primarily. It's not what you do to make money or to make a living because God has given you work to do in his kingdom, in his church. Those are who you are primarily. Everything else can be taken away, but these things cannot be taken away. And as Jesus said, as he, he, didn't, he didn't frame it as, as negatively as I did. He said, all of these things can be added to you. Right? He said it more positively. Focus on this, because that stuff can be added to you. This is the first thing. We may look at the people of Israel and the task before them. They have to go in and take this land. Oh man, if I, you know, if I join the church, if I am baptized, I feel like that's too much. That is too much of a burden that now that God has forgiven me, I have to do what God says, right? Because there's a lot of rules in this book and I don't think that I can live up to this. Is this really a gift and not truly a burden? Well, that's the purpose of what God was doing here with the Jordan. 
He was showing them specifically. They didn't, they didn't have to go this way. They could have gone around the Dead Sea. They could have gone any other way. But God led them this way to show them that they would succeed in what he was calling them to do. Right? And he, did, he didn't say, live an exactly perfect life right now or you're done. Right? That's not the calling of a Christian. Yes, we're called to be holy as he is holy. But when we fail, we have forgiveness. The calling is to be obedient as our, in our identity in building his kingdom, being, being in his kingdom and building it as he has called us to do. It's not a life of perfectionism. Right? The entire purpose of God stopping the Jordan is laid out um, when, he's, when Joshua addresses the people. I'll just reread that. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come and hear and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and so on. The purpose of crossing the Jordan was so that they would know that it is God who would cause the success in their future ventures, in their pursuit of taking the land, in their, suit, in their pursuit of obedience to him, in their pursuit of building up this kingdom. They didn't go, and as we'll read shortly uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks, they didn't go and knock down Jericho's walls, right? They walked around and shouted and blew horns, and God knocked the walls down. They didn't knock the walls down, right? He said, go in and take the land, and I will drive them out. That's the entire thing that's going on. This isn't too much for us because we are not called to be successful in our own strength. The, the church, what we do in the ministry of the church, it is not on us to change another person's heart. Right? If that were the case, yeah, this is that would be daunting and terrifying to us. I've got to go and I've got to change this person's heart? I can't do that. And if that's the way we think, we'll go down weird avenues of like, okay, well, how can I be super, super persuasive? How can I? And then we get into like weird brainwashy stuff. No, don't. That's not, that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to, to force people to believe. We're called to be obedient to God. Right? People may look at that and say, you know, you should be more, you should be more proactive. You need to be you know, as manipulative as you need to be to be successful. Ugh, that just sounded wrong coming out of my mouth. But wasn't it a silly sort of thing that the Israelites are going to do to go march around a city wall? They're going to blow some horns and shout? Is that going to build the kingdom of God? What about the preaching of the word? What about sharing your faith to a friend? What about these regular little ministries of the church, studying the Bible together, exhorting one another with scripture, 
singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs. All of this will look foolish to people looking in on the outside. And it would be foolish. It really would be foolish if God wasn't with us. But that's part of the promise. I do this historical, I, you know, visual event, impossible things that you know that I am with you. And that I will overcome the enemies. That I will build the kingdom. It is not because I am smart enough or charismatic enough. It is not because you have some master plan to fill this church or change people's hearts, but because God is building his kingdom. That's what Christ has saved us for. For our obedient service. For our particular works that he has called us to do. In our particular ways that we are gifted. Whether that is in, in teaching or in encouragement or in, in, in our music or in how, how, how well we connect people. And that's, that's a really great gift is people who connect other people to the other people. Oh, you know, uh, you should meet this person. You should meet that person. It seems like a simple thing. Who would call that a spiritual gift? But yet, it's such a powerful thing. God uses those things to build his kingdom. And that's where we find our purpose. But it's not just that he has saved us for work and for a job. He's also saved us for the fulfillment of that promise. Because Israel wasn't just going to go here and work and work and work indefinitely they were going to find a place to belong, a place to have rest. Through this purpose, God would bring his people into that promised land. They would no longer be wandering in the wilderness. Christ has saved you for himself. The promise that he will be with you is not just provisional, it is a beautiful and glorious end in itself that he will be with you. And that's the promise that God gave the Israelites here. And that's the promise that Christ gave the disciples when he gave the Great Commission and ascended. For behold, I will be with you till the very end of the age. And it's not, as I said, just so that the job can get done. Because that's the fulfillment. When he comes again and we have the glory of heaven. The glory of heaven is Christ. It is his presence with us. God has done the impossible by bringing through waters those who put their faith in him. And by one historical act the crossing of the Jordan, the people of Israel knew that they would take possession of the land because God would win the battle for them. The same is true for you. By one historical act, the death and resurrection of Christ 
you can know that God will build his kingdom. Even through something that looks as foolish and simple as the regular old ministries of his church. God will be with you in your obedient service. And he will change the hearts and minds of his chosen people. He will save them from the just punishment that they cannot satisfy. He will save them from the wicked enslavements that they cannot break free from. And he will not stop there because he will save them for a purpose and for the promise of his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled before your majesty. You stopped the river Jordan by your very presence. You spread wide the Red Sea by a word, by your wind. You flooded the entire earth, and yet you preserved those who trusted in you. Lord, we pray for faith. We pray for energy and encouragement and hope. We pray for clarity of how we can live into this purpose that you have given us. That we would be firm in who we are as your people. That we would love you and serve you as we ought. And Lord, we thank you that your promise is that you will do the succeeding because we could not do it in our own strength. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.